Father, I am so thankful to be here with Thornton uh, this morning, and I just pray that your grace would be on us. We give you thanks, God. God, thank you so much for giving us leaders like Zach and, and Brody and Dakota and Angie and Justin and, and the volunteers and the servant leaders that uh, make the ministries of the church happen. We just give you thanks, Lord, for stirring up faith in their heart and in their life and that they would serve. Father, we pray for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to see the Word of God speak to our life. Would it be the living and active Word of God that's profitable to know? The living and active Word of God that shapes us and corrects us and strengthens us and builds us. And so, Father, would you do a work that only you can do for each single woman and man in this room to meet us where we're at? Father, I pray for those who have stepped in this room in, in a week or maybe a season of grief and sorrow. Would you comfort their hearts? Father, I pray for those who are um, concerned and have big decisions to make. Would you give them wisdom and discernment? I pray for those who are coming in and having a great week and a great season. May they just return praise to you. Would you delight to see us here today as we study your word? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, for me, I'm married to my wife, Kristen, and we have four young kids. Our oldest is 12 and our youngest is now six. Several years ago, we were camping in Nebraska. and In the middle of the night, all six of us were huddled in this old pop-up trailer, terrified. This, the kids were crying and screaming, wondering if it was going to be okay. The wind was just hammering the side of the pop-up's canvas. I thought the roof might just blow off. And they're looking at me and mom, wondering if they're going to be all right. Just a few hours before that, we were huddled around the campfire for our evening s'mores and laughter and enjoying ourselves when other campers came by and said, hey, I know you all from, from Colorado, but here in Nebraska, we can get some big storms at night. And they're predicting a massive storm tonight, 70 to 90 mile an hour winds. And so I would probably start buttoning down the hatches around here. And my kids looked at me and said, dad, are we going to be okay? I said, yeah, it will be just fine, but why don't we go ahead and start putting some things away? So a few hours later is when those storms came in, and the wind started howling, and it got worse and worse and worse, and they're crying, and they're asking mom, you know, can we do something? Can we go somewhere? And mom looks at him and says, listen, look at, look at dad. Is dad scared? They look up at dad, and I have a straight face. And they say, no, dad's not scared. Mom says, when you see dad scared, you can start freaking out. <laughs> and so they're grabbing my legs, grabbing Kristen's legs, and Kristen looks at me and says, I'm freaking out. <laughs> and I mouth back to her, me too. <laughs> we weathered the storm just fine. But there's something amazing in our bodies physiologically that happens when we're afraid, isn't it? There's something that this is God's gift to us, actually. When we're afraid, God has wired us, created us, so that certain chemicals would be released in our bodies. So one would, would go up to our brains and actually suppress any appetites or hungers that we have, would suppress our digestive system in case we are on the run or have to flee for long periods of time. When we're afraid, our senses are heightened. There's this adrenaline that comes through so that we can see more clearly, hear more clearly, smell, taste, all of it 
goes up a level. Now, we all experience fears. We've all experienced fears in our life and experienced our reactions to those fears. Some of us are fighters. Some of us are freezers. We just freeze in place. Some of us are fleers. We just run as fast as possible. Now, I just kind of want to know who's in the room with me. So raise your hand if you're afraid of spiders. If like spiders do it for you. All right. For me, do I have any fellow people who are like snakes? Like snakes just immobilize me. All right. Now, be a little bit more honest. Who's afraid of like social settings? Like you have to go to a social setting, new people in the room, heart rate gets going. You start feeling some of that anxiety and worry. How about public speaking? If you had to get up and share a talk, that's how I'm feeling right now. So I'm glad there's a few of you with me. And we could become more and more acquainted with each other if we just kept asking these more personal questions. Like who's afraid that they have what it takes to do life? Who's afraid if someone finds out that they're really not enough? Who's afraid of financial securities, if they're going to do okay? Who's afraid of health, getting the coronavirus? Who's afraid of giving it to somebody else? Who's in this room is concerned or afraid of where the country is going? Or if these people had authority and power in the country, they would lead it in this direction, and I'd be concerned where it's going. You see, fear has caused a lot of different decisions in our life this last two years. People who are in fear make different decisions because in our, when, we're in, when we're in fear, a constant state of fear, our brain operates differently. Medical professionals tell us that when we're in a, conic, a constant state of fear called chronic fear, we can be immobilized by it and actually make poor decisions that affect the people around us, affect our own life, or even the future. They say chronic fear can impair the storage of long-term memories and lead to the damage of some parts of the brain, including the hippocampus. Constant fear can short-circuit the response paths in your mind, thereby making it more difficult to regulate fear and make you feel afraid most of the time. Now, it's one thing to be afraid, to have God's given response to fear happen, but when that threat is gone or subsides, so too should our fear. But chronic fear keeps us in a state of being afraid and has physical, spiritual, and mental impacts. It says persistent fear can cause headaches to become migraines, to have nervousness, become full panic attacks. See, in some cases, fear can tamper with brain processes responsible for regulating nonverbal cues, emotional cues, and how we react to the information presented to us. This can affect our decision-making and result in intense emotions or impulsive reactions. It may also challenge our ability to concentrate and result in an inappropriate speech or behaviors. Persistent fear can change how we act and behave towards those in our surrounding. That's what chronic fear does. And some of you in the room go, why are you talking about that? Like, leave that for the professionals. Like, just, just talk about the Bible here. Well, we're going to open up God's Word. It's because you need to know how you are both physically and spiritually wired. See, what you're, you're called, what's, or you're, you are what's called a bipartite being, both flesh and spirit. And so if you're going to go seek counsel in the world, and they only address you as a physical being, and they take all of the issues that you're experiencing, relational issues, issues in life or whatever, and they only address the physical side, they're going to be limited in their scope of what they can do for helping you because they don't recognize you as a bipartite being. Likewise, if you come to a church or you open up your word or sit underneath teachers that only address you as a spiritual being and not as a physical being, 
then those helps will also be limited in some way because they're not addressing you as a whole human as God has made you to be. And so what we want to do is say, this conversation belongs in the church. This conversation of how we respond in, in times of fear belongs in the church because God has wired us both spiritual and physical, and he's given us his word that speaks into this specific issues. Because when we live in a constant state of fear and we're not able to access our normal, logical, wise, discerning processes, and we're making decisions that are more rash and logical, they become harmful. And we can hurt people. We can break up relationships in our life. We can make decisions that will have long-term impacts that we wouldn't normally make in a state of health if we're operating from a place of fear. For example, be honest with me. Okay, this is church. Can't lie in church. How many of you made a purchase in the last two years somewhat based on fear? This is why I have toilet paper in my basement. Come on. Like something, you make a a decision, you say, oh my goodness, because there's a shortage of something, because there's something that's out of my control, because there's something in which I'm not certain of the future, I'm going to try to make this decision in the present now to gain some control, to gain some assurance, to try to gain some resources so that I will be okay. And normally you probably wouldn't have made those decisions, but we did because we were in a state, a place of fear. Some people buy a lot of toilet paper. Some people made financial decisions that they wish they didn't, purchasing something, selling something, moving somewhere based on fear. Some people in, in this country, perhaps in this room, procure their very first firearm in the last two years from a place of fear. Firearm sales are up hundreds and hundreds of percent. Why is that? It's because I think overall as a country, we're in a place that we haven't experienced in a while, which is a place of uncertainty, a place that seems to be, there's like shortages of insecurities, of not knowing what the future will bring. And that puts us in a place of at least timidity, if not full-fledged fear. Now, fear is something the Bible speaks about. I want to look at two characters today. One who did not deal with their fear in a healthy way and thereby destroyed relationships with their family, destroyed relationships with friends, destroyed relationships within their community and their religious organizations. And then another example of how you deal with fear so that you you might preserve those things and bring peace back into your life. The first one I want to look at is is a name by the name of Saul. Now, this is not Saul in the New Testament, who you know as the Apostle Paul, the great author of the New Testament. We're looking at Saul of the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. And Saul's an interesting character to look at with fear as the lens, because you wouldn't immediately think that Saul would be someone who's afraid. Because all in the exterior of Saul's life is that Saul's got it together. I mean, Saul is a man's man. When Samuel goes to anoint Saul as king, Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. He looks just like me, okay? He comes from a good family. He has good resources. And then being a king, he has authority and strength of of military and soldiers. You would think that Saul would be the most confident, fearless leader. But what we find is the scriptures open up for us. This man is a, a fearful leader. And we see based on his fear, he makes really poor decisions. When he's fa- faced with the Philistines, with the Amalekites and others, he makes decisions that are so bad that actually his kingship is taken from him. Samuel comes to him and says, Saul, why did you do this? God told you, don't do this. Why did you do this? And Saul just simply says, I was afraid. I was afraid of what the people would do, what the people would think, what the people would 
would say, I was afraid. And Samuel says, well, because you did this, your kingship is removed. And so then we know that there's another story, probably most familiar with Saul and this other king in our story by the name of David. This is the story of David and Goliath, that Saul and the armies of Israel are against the Philistine armies. And there's a man, a great warrior by the name of Goliath. And what should the king be doing? He should be fighting the great giant. I mean, Saul's Israel's hero. Go fight. But he's not. He's sitting in his tent, afraid. And that fear of leadership has now permeated into the armies of Israel. So when David arrives and says, who's this Philistine? Everyone says, oh, that's Goliath. And we all are afraid. Who will fight him? They say, well, I'll fight him. If he's going to stand up against the armies of the living God, then I will take Goliath down. And David does. Saul, seeing David's courage, brings him into his company. Saying, okay, here's an asset to me to help keep me safe. And so he brings David into his company, appoints him to oversee parts of his armies. And David goes out on different campaigns, very successful campaigns, and keeps Israel and Saul safe. Well, there's a mantra that comes from this. Like, the people start talking about David. And so if you grab your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel. We're going to open up in chapter 18. This mantra is known in the palace. It's known locally in the neighborhoods, in the community, on the fringes, and even in the foreign lands. Everybody's talking about it. Chapter 18, verse 7. It says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So the ladies be singing. Now, you know, when the ladies start talking, it's like, oh, Saul, he's got his thousands, but woo! David has got his ten thousands. And Saul hears this, and he's wounded by it, and he's afraid of it. What will this mean for me? Now there's uncertainty. What will David do? Maybe he'll do something. Maybe he'll try to attack me. Maybe he'll try to take over my throne. He's only been a servant up to this point, but I bet you he is going to become a threat. And so Saul's heart begins to turn against David. Check out 18 verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 15. And when Saul saw that he had great success, that's David, he stood in fearful awe of him. Now, Saul ends up taking one of his daughters and giving her to David in marriage, perhaps to keep your enemies closer, bring them into the family. I'm not exactly sure, but the end of chapter 18, verse 28 says, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So now Saul has identified David as a threat to his life. And he becomes an enemy. What you see unpacked over the next several chapters is that Saul turns to David with anger and violence, attempting to pursue him, to kill him, put him to death, and rid him of his life. This David, that is his servant, 
This David that is his son-in-law. This David who is a great leader of Israel, who really is no threat, but in a chronic state of fear, you make rash, illogical decisions. And what you see is Saul ruins his family, ruins his community, ruins his friendships, and actually brings desolation upon the religious community. David, being warned of Saul's intentions, flees. He runs out of town. And he goes to a place called Nob. And Nob, there is a priest that he often would seek counsel from. His name is Ahimelech. So if you go to chapter 22, here's the story of 22. So he runs to Nob, runs to Ahimelech, and says, I'm on the run. Saul's trying to kill me. And here's Ahimelech, like, Saul, no, like, you're a servant of Saul. What'd you do? He's like, I haven't done anything. He views me as a threat. He says, do you have any food or provisions for me? Do you have a sword? I had to run so fast, I don't have anything with me. Ahimelech gives him bread and says, the only sword we have here, David, is the sword of Goliath, the one you slayed. David's like, that's a great sword. I'll take that. So he grabs a sword. He grabs bread. He has some company now. And what you see is he flees into the wilderness. And David continues to move as a hunted animal for the next season of his life. Well, while, while David was visiting Ahimelech, there was another man there by the name of Doeg. And Doeg runs back to Saul and says, I know where David is. I can tell you where he went. He went to Ahimelech and the priests, and they resourced him. They inquired of the Lord for him. And Saul, in his rage and anger, now views the priests as a threat. And so he brings them to himself. And questions Ahimelech, did you inquire of the Lord for David? Did you resource David? And Ahimelech's like, yeah, that's what I've always done. I mean, king, he's your servant. He's your family. This is what he does. He comes to me. I resource him. I love on him. We're doing this together. We're both servants. He's trying to bring reality back. It's almost as though Ahimelech's like, hey, I don't know what conspiracy theory you're in, but it's just not true. Like, I don't know who's feeding you these lies, but David's not a threat to you. I'm not a threat to you. Why are you doing this? And Saul says, because you helped David, I'm going to put you to death. And he turns to all the temple guards and says, kill them, Ahimelech and 85 priests. Now, the guards, in their right senses, are like, no, like false, we're not doing that. You can't just slay the spiritual leaders of Israel. Are you crazy? So then he turns to Doag. He says, Doag, will you kill him? And Doag puts to death Ahimelech and 85 priests in the service of God. One of the priests that were there is Ahimelech's son. And so his name is Abiathar. Is it Abiathar? I can't remember if it's Abiathar or Abiathar. Abathar, thank you, Abathar. And he runs from there to go find David. And Abathar runs out to meet David in the caves in just terror. And I love what David does when he sees him. This is verse 23 of 22. He just says, stay with me, do not be afraid. Stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Kind of like, time out. (laughs) So the words that David gives me is, don't be afraid. The guy who wants to kill you really wants to kill me. 
And if I'm a Biathar, I'm thinking, maybe this isn't the safest place to stay. But I think what David knows is this. When you're in fear, you can't be alone. You just can't. When you're in isolation and you're experiencing fear, it will feed on itself in this vicious cycle. And so David just says, you just stay here with us, okay? Do not be afraid. With us, you'll be safe. It's okay. Even if he's seeking your life, he's seeking ours. We'll go through this together. And what we see is that Saul hunts David over the next season of his life. Now in chapter 24, if you want to turn there, chapter 24, the showdown happens. The climax of the story. Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now he's recruited 3,000 more people to participate in his fear. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So here Saul, unknown to him, the one he's hunting, is right behind him. What does David do? Well, the first question to ask is, is David afraid? Is David afraid at this time? And there's something in our minds, I think, when we read these stories and we know of David and David and Goliath, David, we're thinking, David is like a cut above. Like he has just more faith than we do. And so when you think of David, you think of fears in his life, you're thinking, that guy, it's like ice water in his veins. Nothing bothers him. Nothing gets him off his game. Nothing can cause him to be afraid. And then you would find out that nothing could be further than the truth. And we know that because David journaled about this. David writes many of the Psalms that we have in the scriptures. And so these are like, these are like looking at someone's journal entries of what's going on in their heart and in their mind and their, in their soul when they're experiencing life that's really hard. And so we're going to go to Psalm 55. And Psalm 55 is David's journal entry that we should look at of how is he feeling and what does he do. So 55, 1 David writes, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of my enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. David said, look at that. Their fear has become anger, and their anger is targeting me. Now, what can we say about anger? Well, anger is not a primary emotion. Anger is what's called a secondary emotion. Anger comes from something, comes from somewhere. So imagine someone maybe in your life who's a really angry person. Most likely, they're a very fearful person. Now, I just outed anyone in the room who is experiencing this. I've experienced this in my own life. It comes from a place of fear. When we're afraid, we have different responses. One of them can be intense anger. It's a way to preserve ourselves, protect ourselves, try to become bigger than we are, stronger than we are, and so we become angry. Here's an easy illustration. You're a parent with a young child, 
and you've told this, and you're sitting outside in the front lawn, and you're on the front porch steps over there, and you tell your kid, do not play in the street. Do not play in the street. Do not play in the street. And they're out there maybe with friends or a sibling, and they're playing, you know, football, and their ball's going back and forth, and someone misses a pass or, or punts it too far, and it rolls out into the street, and you see it go in the street, and you see your kid running after it. At the same time, you see a car coming down the street, not seeing your kid running out there. And so, with lightning cat-like reflexes, you jump off the front stair and you're running to your kids. Everything is in slow motion at this point, yes? Like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You grab your kid, pull them back on the sidewalk just as the racing car buzzes by. And you look at your kid and you say, whew, that was close. I love you, buddy. <laughs> Why do you laugh? It's because you say, what were you doing? How many times have I told you? Don't play in the street. See, the emotion, the emotion was what? Fear. And that emotion didn't go anywhere as soon as that threat was gone. So it has to go somewhere. Well, in an unhealthy way, where does it go? Is fear. It turns into anger turns into anger and we explode. Now you can be also an internalizer of anger and you just, just dwell and you just shrink back into your life and you become immobilized by it. But fear is one of the primary emotions that leads to anger. I've had the privilege of working in prison ministries and working work with addicts and in those environments, it's like violence is king. Why? When I would ask inmates, like, why is everybody so angry? They'd say, this is let me just tell you the truth. Everyone's afraid. This is a terrifying place to be. And so build yourself up. Get big. Feel strong. And that's the anger that comes out. So whenever you have someone in your life that's a very angry person, you might not want to ask, like, why are you angry? You want to ask, what's, what's behind the anger? Like, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? For Saul, pursuing David, he sees David as a threat. Now, anger can come from other things. Anger can come from sadness and hurts, and that can happen over time, physical or emotional. There's also righteous anger is the right response to injustice, wrongdoing. That's where you see God's anger, Jesus' anger. When he gets angry, it's the right-fitting response to what is unjust. But here Saul's anger is pursuing David. Back to 55, verse 4, David says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror, horror overwhelms me. That's what's going on in David. And so to think of David as this hero who is untouched by fear is just not right. There's actually something comforting happening here for me is when I recognize that having faith and experiencing fear is not incompatible. People of great faith have experienced fear before. And so if you experience fear in your life, you're not alone. You're not alone. The great heroes have experienced it too. The question is, what do they do with it? He goes on, and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. You ever experienced that? I just want to get out. I want to end this. I don't know where to go, but if I could go somewhere, I would. I'd get on a, on a plane. I'd get a VRBO, an Airbnb, and I'd be done. I'd walk away from this marriage. I'd walk away from this job. I'd walk away from my life if I could. You ever experienced that? You're not alone 
He says, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it, ruins in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. That's the first part of the psalm. What what do we learn of David? What is his practice in fear that we should practice? The first is this. It's okay to complain. The first place to go in our fears is to the God in complaint. Back in the very part, I am restless in my complaint and I moan all day long to you. Like there's something about Christians that just say, you know what we should do is just have a stiff upper lip. Like nothing affects us. I'm not afraid. I'm not concerned. God's got this. Faith over fear. I bought the shirt, you know? And there's a place to say, you know, David, who's a mighty warrior, drops a complaint with God. That's where he begins. Complaining is speaking life as it really is. It's naming what you're afraid of. He says, I'm not afraid of an enemy. I mean, I, you see me, I just destroy him. I'm afraid. I'm concerned. I'm haunted by my friend, my companion, the one who's backstabbing me right now. That's what I'm afraid of. He names his fear. He, com- he complains to God. This is my anger. This is my grief. This is my concern. This is my discontentment. See, God is a big God with a big chest that you can go to him and you can beat on his chest with your complaint. Like, why is this happening? This is concerning to me. Can you pay attention to me? And just name it what it is. Just say, what is it that makes you afraid? It might be different for you than it is for me, but what is it? And have you brought it to the Lord? That's the first thing. The second thing is his complaining doesn't end there. He doesn't just whine and then leave. His complaining turns to a calling. Verse 16, but I call to God. Calling is the sense of presence. When you call someone, you're asking them to come to be in your presence or for you to join their presence. You're you're wanting that relational gap to close. So calling on God. Let me come into your presence. Remind me of your presence. I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old because they do not change and they do not fear God. He says, I fear God. I fear God. That's why I'm coming to God with my fear. I'm coming to God because I trust him. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords, is what Saul's doing. The first thing is he complains. The second is he calls. Like, God, be the presence, be the assurance in my life. This is why David's able to write psalms like Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, shepherd, the one who's present with his sheep. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are 
with me. You're with me in this. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table, a place of resting in the presence of my enemies, David says. Why does he say that? Because God is with him. That's calling on God. I can't be alone in this. I need you to be with me. And he reminds himself of how God has been with him. He has protected his soul in safety. That even though he's on the run, the Lord has provided for him. There's a company with David. There's food and supplies for David. There's safe shelter for David. And even though that he's afraid and he's on the run, the Lord is still with him. And in the midst of this, is still providing for him. And so he complains to God, says it as it is. He calls on God to be present with him. And then the third thing is this, he, he, he casts his burden, which is the releasing of it, the surrendering of it. Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pits of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I, says David, I will trust in you. I'll trust in you. He says, I'm going to cast my burden. What's his burden? This weight, this fearful weight of Saul pursuing him. I'm going to give all of that over to you. I'm going to surrender this to you because you're with me. Now, does it say, and God will take it all away? Is that what it says? I will cast my burden on the Lord and he will take it all away. It doesn't say that. It says, and he will sustain you. Does God immediately remove Saul as a threat to David as soon as David prays? He doesn't. Has God going to immediately remove the things in your life that are maybe threats to your well-being immediately as soon as you pray? No. He will sustain you through them. He will give you his spirit, his presence, his rod and his staff to be with you to give you supernatural strength, spiritual strength, to go through this. This is drastically different than what Saul was seeking because David fears God and he trusts God. Another psalm that David writes, perhaps during this same episode, is Psalm, 20, or sorry, psalm 52, where he says of probably Saul, this could also be, that's probably Saul, could be, I was going to say his son Absalom when Absalom was pursuing him, but it's going to be Saul in verse 7. He says, see the man who would not make God his refuge, who would not run to God and complain and call and cast their fears on God. See that man? But he trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction, safety in his own destruction of other people. See that man? Look what he's destroyed. But David, on the other hand, says, I will trust in you and you will sustain me. Now, here's a question from Psalm 55. His complaining and his calling and his casting, how often is he doing that? Once a week on Sunday? What does he say? He says morning, noon, and night. That, that, that becomes a pattern for people in Israel. Remember Daniel? How often did Daniel pray when he was in exile in Babylon? Three times a day. Morning, noon, and night. Look at the prayer life of Jesus. Often in the morning he would retreat while it was still dark. In the afternoon, he would break away from crowds to go be with the Father. In the evening, he was found in desolate places. There's a pattern here that when we come to the Lord, it's not just this one time driving down the highway and saying, oh, Lord, I'm afraid, take us away. <sighs> He's not doing anything. No, it's to seek him 
morning, noon, and night. A practice that I shared with some, some folks after service was the practice of even just putting an alarm on my phone. Like sometime in the morning, sometime in the afternoon, sometime in the evening, where it would just go off and just be an alarm. It would just remind me to stop and pause my life, whatever's going on, and retreat into relationship with the Lord and say, Lord, this is where I'm at right now today. This is what's frustrating me. This is where I'm struggling today. And then I'm calling on you to be present with me for the rest of the day. Would you, would you show me your presence? And then would you, would you shoulder this with me so that I'm not shouldering this alone? I'm not going to trust in my own strength, in my own wisdom and discernments. I need you. That's what David does. So how does the whole thing end then? Well, in 1 Samuel 24, it concludes by this. David doesn't kill Saul right there. He's not so ingrained in his fear that he makes a rash, illogical decision to put Saul to death. He cuts a little piece of his garment off, unknown to Saul. Saul leaves the cave, and then David follows and calls out to him, Saul! Saul! And he turns around, and Saul, somewhat bewildered, David? David, is that you? David says, Saul, why are you pursuing me? I'm not a threat to you. I'm your servant. I'm your son-in-law. I serve you as the king. You're the Lord's anointed. In fact, look, I could have killed you. Here's a piece of your garment, but I didn't. Do you see now? Can you wake up? You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. I didn't put you to death when I could have. And there the Bible tells us that Saul weeps. He weeps. Like reality just hit him. Like, what have I been doing? Look at the carnage that lies behind me because of my fear. He says, David, forgive me. David, forgive me. Like, you're more of a righteous man than me. David, forgive me. And so there's the contrast between two men, both experiencing fear. Both experiencing fear. And one who's enslaved by it, ruins family, friends, community, puts people to death. The other comes to the Lord with their fear, being honest with God, bringing up their complaint, calling on God, and then casting it to Him. And David somehow absolves fear with his faith. Isn't that amazing? He actually takes fear away from Saul so that they would depart in peace. We as Christians should be like that. There's something about being honest with our fear, bringing it before God and casting on Him that allows us to do the next move, which is courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is in the presence of fear moving towards risk. That's what courage is. Does it take David, is it a great risk to David to walk outside the cave to Saul and the 3,000 men? Yes. The answer to that is yes. How does he do that? It's because he knows that he's not alone, that the Lord shoulders this with him. And that's what you need to know today. Whatever fear you have, you're not alone. We need to bring it to the Lord, call on him to be present with us, and then cast it on him. And then with courage, with courage, Christian, in the midst of fear, we will move towards risk. Now, I just want to practice that with you.